Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by co-founder and principal at the Marathon Initiative, Wes Mitchell. Prior to this, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs during the Trump administration. Roger and Wes discussed the recent Russian military buildup along Ukraine's border and the Biden administration's response. Wes Mitchell, welcome to the show. Roger, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, we, we are happy you're here. We take you at any time, but this is probably the best time to have you here. Uh, of course, you're known in Washington as a former Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, which meant that you spent a bunch of time during the Trump administration focusing on security, and diplomacy in Europe. And if you're focusing on security and diplomacy in Europe, it means you're thinking a lot about Russia. Are you at all surprised, Wes, that the United States is now dealing with a big Russia problem as it relates to 100,000 Russian forces surrounding Ukraine? Roger, thanks for that introduction. It's great to be able to talk to you. I'm not surprised. Uh, Putin is uh, behaving true to form. I mean, in some, in some regards, we've seen this movie before, but I am surprised by the scale of uh, what the Russians are putting in the field on the borders with Ukraine. It suggests a level of ambition that we, we haven't seen in, in, even in some, of, in, in some of, of Putin's bolder moves in the past. It could be the most uh, serious crisis that we've seen in Europe since the end of the Cold War, and, and we may be on the cusp of, a, of the largest land war that we've seen in Europe since since really the, the Second World War. So it's it's very serious. Cusp of the largest land war since the Second World War, a possibility. Of course, Putin has carried out an invasion of Ukraine recently, 2014, took over the Crimean Peninsula. Since then, continued fighting in, in the Donbass region, the eastern province of Ukraine. Why is this significantly different than 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and, and, and Donbass region? Well, I think it's different in a couple of ways. One, just looking at the facts on the ground, it certainly appears that Putin is putting a lot more muscle on the table than he, than he used even in 2014. It's not just the number of Russian troops, it's the the uh, sophistication of some of the weapons that they appear to be putting on the border and where they're putting them. So it's not just in eastern Ukraine, um, the, the area of conflict that we're most familiar with, but it's also in the north. He could come down from Belarus. It could be, you can imagine a pincher movement. It could, I mean, he, he's got troops probably two and a half, three hours north of Kiev, it looks like, pretty significant uh, troop strength. So I think it's the scale of the muscle, which in turn, in ter- in turn would seem to suggest a scale of ambition or possibility of doing bigger things than he's done in the past. I, I think the other thing, though, is just the context. Putin sure seems to see himself as having a plastic moment that is that lends itself 
um, to, to, to playing more aggressively and, and, and moving more boldly than he has in the past. I think you can explain that in part by uh, the European political situation. We have a new German government. Uh, it's still early, but it, it sure seems to be amenable to a, a deepening of the relationship with, with Russia. You have a Nord Stream 2 project that's moving forward that increases uh, Putin's leverage over Ukraine. You can't take the U.S. out of the, the equation. I mean, the, the Biden administration uh, made some early moves after coming into office that were that, 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 that signaled ambivalence at best about where Ukraine fit and its priorities. We had the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was hugely chaotic. So I think if you're Putin, and for that matter, if you're Xi Jinping, I think you look at that combination of factors and you say, gee, this is a... This is a moment at a, at a minimum to kind of test the boundaries, probe a little bit, maybe do more than that. But I think it's, it's about that, that opportunity that Putin senses is more favorable for him than in the past. So, Wes, you've talked about the significant muscle, military muscle, that Putin has placed on the border of Ukraine. And, and you note it's not just eastern Ukraine, but it's also from the south and the north because— Putin has put forces in Belarus, nominally to carry out a military exercise, but everyone knows that it's related to the troop buildup. You've also noted that it's not just muscle, but the moment seems to be an opening for Vladimir Putin. Germany's new government, uh, implicit there, was, of course, their energy dependence on Russia. The posture of the Biden administration, not just Afghanistan, but a general ambivalence, as you note. And you mentioned China as well. There is some coordination we've learned between China and Russia as it relates to helping each other accomplish uh, their goals to have uh, increase and broaden their spheres of influence. I want to get to all of that. But the fourth piece, which I'd like you to delve into a little bit more, is what is going on inside Ukraine? We have a president of Ukraine, democratically elected. He looks to the West. He is not a puppet of Putin, what has happened in Ukraine that perhaps makes Vladimir Putin more focused on doing something now, as opposed to prior to Zelensky during the Trump administration or a couple of years from now? Well, that's a that's a great question. And I think the first thing that's relevant here is uh, that has to be acknowledged is how far Ukraine has come in the period since 2014 by any reasonable metric of the strength of its institutions. Obviously, corruption is still a problem. It's still an emerging democracy in many ways. But the Ukrainians have made great strides in, bringing, in, in building strong institutions. Um, and, and I think more than that, the very fact of Russian aggression in Ukraine uh, helped forge a sense of Ukrainian na nationhood. So when the Ukrainian army takes the field, um, we hope it won't happen, but if the Russians do invade and the Ukrainian army takes the field, it's not the army of conscripts and kind of half-strength battalions that we saw in 2014. There's a real sense of cohesion and, and nationhood. And that's in, in large measure as a result of, of Russian aggression and the reaction to Russian aggression. Um, it, that, that, that kind of bespeaks a second strategic reality. And I, th and I think it's key from Putin's perspective. If, if Ukraine is succeeding, in a way, it shows that the Russian strategy is not succeeding. Mm. Now, I think Putin's ultimate goal is to have a Ukraine that is uh, that, that, that runs a foreign policy that's that 
at least friendly to Russia, but uh, preferably controlled by Russia. So he wants a friendly and aligned, uh, more than a buffer state. He wants a proxy on his borders. And Ukraine, is it covers the, the largest stretch of, of, of Russia's western borders of, of, of any of the former Soviet satellite states. So uh, Putin's strategy to date has been to kind of keep the Ukrainians pinned down. Uh, you know, the fact of the ongoing kind of simmering uh, conflict in, in Donbass, we get flare-ups every once in a while, he keeps the Ukrainians pinned to the mat, he builds up every once in a while uh, in hopes of eventually getting a diplomatic situation where Zelensky will, will cave, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, would cave in and implement the Minsk agreement. Now, the Minsk agreement is not a good agreement for Ukraine. Ukraine agreed to this several years ago under the barrel of a gun. And to just take the most uh, obvious example of why it would be bad for Ukraine, it would mean if, if Ukraine implemented the Minsk agreement tomorrow, Zelensky would have to oversee changes to the Ukrainian constitution, which would allow the, separat the separatist republics to basically exist as entities within a federalized structure. Good chance other provinces or regions of Ukraine would follow suit. And so this works to Putin's advantage because you would have a weak center presiding over kind of a loosely federalized structure that lends itself to getting co-opted from within. Now, Zelensky, uh, I think at present, I will speculate, finds himself under a lot of pressure, particularly from some of our Western European allies, to just make these problems go away and implement the Minsk agreement. So if you're looking at all of that from Putin's perspective, I think you have both the sense of urgency to uh, maybe, and maybe that leads you to change your tactics because Ukraine in, in some senses is succeeding. And you have the prospect of, of, get, of, of uh, seeing Western European allies bring more pro political pressure to bear on Zelensky to implement Minsk. So the ideal outcome for Putin would be to, to have uh, to coercive leverage built up inside Ukraine that leads to the political changes that he wants in Ukraine and more friendly Russia faced, fa facing Ukraine without ever having to fire a shot. And so in some ways, I think this is a wager to see if he can get that. So you have 100,000 troops amassed on the border, kind of under the barrel of a gun, you force a political change. It, it, it aligns in some ways with what the Britain, British Foreign Office put out recently in a statement where they said that Russia wants, quote, to install a pro-Russian leader in Kiev as it considers whether to invade and occupy Ukraine. And and Wes Mitchell, what I hear from you is, all right, if they're able to, through this pressure, get a new government in, Zelensky out, uh, a more Yanukovych-like figure, a pro-Russian, perhaps Russian puppet figure, then you'd see someone who would want to embrace this Minsk agreement, which doesn't get a lot of discussion in the press. Uh, and I want to go back to that in a second. But at the very least, it would give Putin a win as it relates to making Ukraine within, keeping or, 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 or ensuring Ukraine stays within the Russian sphere of influence. Wes, let me push back a little bit because that makes a lot of sense. It seems to me that Vladimir Putin is seeking something more than just that. And what I'm referring to are the demands that get a lot of coverage in the international press that Putin wants to use this moment to push the West, to push NATO to do a few things. One, to say that Ukraine and Georgia will not enter NATO. 
Two, that NATO will not deploy forces on its eastern flank. That is, we will not have NATO forces in the Balts and elsewhere, Poland, that border uh, Russia. How critical are those objectives for Vladimir Putin, or is it all kind of a, a diplomatic kind of play to just realize what you've described, uh, a weak Ukrainian leader that looks to Moscow for guidance? Well, it's a really smart question, and I would put it this way. I think the objectives are linked, uh, intimately linked. I think what uh, Putin is attempting to achieve inside Ukraine is linked to a larger objective uh, of uh, achieving a state of affairs on Russia's western uh, borders, its western frontiers, that's more favorable from uh, Russian strategic perspective. Ukraine is kind of the, the keystone, the cornerstone of that strategy. Uh, its geography, its size, uh, it also has a huge symbolic meaning to the Russian people. But in strategic terms, if you look at the demands that Putin put forward, certainly the first two, really all three, but especially the first two, correspond back to that same objective as in, uh, of, of ensuring that there are um, states along the western frontier of Russia that are either friendly to or controlled by Russia. It's a longstanding Russian strategic objective all the way back to the days of the Russian Empire. Uh, those demands simply formalize what the Russians have wanted from most of the period since the end of the Cold War. Um, what's interesting to me is that the Russians felt like now was a moment to put uh, such ambitious Im demands on the table, which clearly Putin expected would not be accepted by the West. Uh, there's no scenario in which um, this administration or, or any recent U.S. administration, or for that matter, most NATO governments would entertain seriously the idea, for example, of withdrawing all uh, U.S. or Western military forces and, and materiel east of Germany. Um, it, there, and I would say the same of uh, the, the idea of formally rejecting uh, any future prospect of NATO membership for Ukraine. Now, look, the, the political reality in NATO is that there is a there is a not only a plurality, there's a majority of allies in NATO who are not in favor of bringing Ukraine into NATO anytime soon. The political uh, situation doesn't favor favor the obvious strategic reason is if we brought NATO in tomorrow, we would be in a shooting war with Russia. Article five would be uh, triggered immediately. And of course, Putin knows that the political uh, environment inside NATO uh, doesn't favor Ukraine going into NATO anytime soon, which makes it all the more remarkable that these, these demands were put forward. The only way to view it, I think, is in almost 19th century, almost in terms of 19th century diplomacy, where, where uh, uh, a, a country that has determined on a course of war puts forward demands that it knows will be rejected. Maybe they're designed to be rejected because it already plans to go to war and will have a, not only, uh, in a way, a pretext, but if and when, in this case, Russia does go into Ukraine, let's say Russia goes in, let's say Putin goes in bigger than we're expecting, bigger than the conventional wisdom, and seizes a significant chunk of uh, Ukrainian territory. What if he encircles Kiev or goes across the Dnieper? Well, then, when he retables these same demands, 
after having seized more Ukrainian territory, he's got more leverage. And maybe the calc- who knows what's in Putin's mind, but maybe the calculation is then when he tables the demands, you have four or five or six uh, European allies or, you know, who defect and say, maybe we do need a big conversation with Russia about the shape of the security architecture. So I think it's a wager that is toggling diplomacy and force. And the big question now is, is, is does, does Putin really amass more leverage with the use of force? But again, I think it all comes back to that Russian objective about Western frontiers of Russia that are populated by friendly or malleable or controlled states. So, so that's quite interesting. So a couple of things, just to make sure I understood you correctly. Yes, an objective is to make Ukraine and, and Ukraine's leadership look to Moscow. We can accomplish that either by invading or just by the coercive pressure alone of having forces along the border. And Putin wants to see if he can use this moment for the reasons you've outlined earlier. Germany's, Europe's dependence on energy sources, the posture of the Biden administration, that to get back to the moment where Russia did not have to look to its Western border and see NATO forces amassed, even though from the U.S. standpoint, NATO's standpoint, it's a defensive alliance. It's been that way for you know decades, and this is in no way a provocation. From Vladimir Putin's view of the world, it's been a problem for two decades, and now's his moment to address it. And he might be able to address it best by throwing in forces into Ukraine, changing dynamic, and picking off NATO allies. Let's stick with that kind of line of thinking there, Wes, because it does present some more rationale for why the Biden administration and NATO writ large has responded to the Russian buildup, not just, as you note, on Ukraine's eastern border, but actually putting forces in the north, northern border in, in, in Belarus. By now, we have 8,500 U.S. forces on, quote, alert. You have Spain sending forces or uh, air power into Bulgaria, Netherlands doing the same, France sending into Romania, uh, forces going into Poland, Denmark sending in uh, to the Balts, to Lithuania. What you see there is a ratcheting up potentially of NATO forces. And the critique has been, well, how is that going to help Ukraine? But I'm sensing maybe the answer is, is that if Russia is going to change the facts on the ground by invading Ukraine and the negotiation, the diplomacy is about what's it going to take to withdraw. We have to ratchet up the Western presence. Give me your reaction to that or, or tell me whether you agree or disagree in terms of almost the, the chess match that seems to be uh, playing out here or uh, for those risk enthusiasts, you know, the deployment of forces uh, to drive some diplomatic outcome. Well, look, I think it's prudent to put U.S. forces uh, – on alert, um, to start getting the pieces in place to potentially deploy the NATO very high, re- uh, very, what is it? The NATO Rapid Reaction Force, uh, the very high readiness force. Um, those, are, those are all prudent precautions. But the thing to keep in mind is that none of that is going to change, to my mind, none of that changes Putin's fundamental calculus. Um, these are not troops that are bound for Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Now, what they can do, and it is very important, is they can underscore NATO cohesion, uh, especially for frontline allies of NATO like Poland and the Baltic states, who are understandably nervous. I think they also can um, 
they act as a th those additional forces can act as a kind of insurance policy against the spillover or, or ripple effect from the crisis, which uh, is is a not insubstantial risk. I think though th there's a, a heavy domestic political consideration for for Biden, which is that he has to do something. And if we're honest, these moves are overdue. Um, I mean, look, the Biden administration came in coming into office, I think, made some moves that inadvertently helped create the crisis. So after all these months of rhetoric on uh, campaign trail about how Biden was going to be tougher on on Russia, the minute he's in office, the administration extends an invitation to a high level meeting between Biden and Putin. Uh, you know, look, the administration essentially green lighted Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is massively beneficial to Russia. Uh, but you could go further than that. I mean, the ambivalence that the administration had in its first few months on Ukraine, slow rolling the military aid package for Ukraine. Uh, the administration appears not to have uh, supported the idea of a meeting of the NATO-Ukraine Council on the sidelines of the July NATO summit, which is a really big deal in the NATO context and, and unprecedented for the United States specifically to not be supportive of that format. I mean, Biden on the sidelines of the NATO com uh, uh, summit uh, or leaders meeting in the summer made comments which appeared to, to, to cast some shade on uh, the longstanding uh, Bucharest pledge of, of, NATO, of Ukraine eventually becoming a, a NATO member state. All of that is hugely significant from Biden's perspective, uh, from Putin's perspective, if he's trying to gauge the plasticity of this moment for, for taking greater coercive action in Ukraine. All of which is to say, I think the administration is beginning to take some prudent steps. I think the most important thing that needs to be done is, a, is giving the Ukrainians the defensive tools that they need to defend themselves. That's a job for the U.S. It looks like we're gradually beginning to, to do more of that, which is good. We should have done more of it early in, after, the, after the administration came into office. But it's also a job for our European allies, first and foremost. Uh, this is a European crisis. And so the ability to have U.S. weapons and, and material is great, but you know, Turkish drones, uh, British anti-tank weapons, long list of uh, assets, uh, capabilities that our allies are providing. What's conspicuously ab absent, though, of course, is, is Germany. And, and yeah, well, I, I want to go to Germany in just a second, but you did just give a, a very uh, involved and, and, and specific critique of the Biden administration's posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia that, in your mind, clearly signaled to Putin that there was going to be an opportunity here. Um, let's just talk, you know, talk about Nord Stream 2. You talk about engaging with Putin diplomatically, sidelining Ukraine, or certainly not giving Ukraine and President Zelensky the same type of engagement that uh, you might have expected uh, if you wanted to demonstrate to Putin, hey, that we're going to be here for Ukraine. What do you think President Biden's red line is? I mean, if, if it is, as you've outlined, that perhaps, you know, he's somewhat comfortable with Ukraine not being in, in NATO and Russia having a sphere of influence, at what point does President Biden, in your mind, Wes Mitchell, say, hey, this is going beyond what I can accept? Well, I I think the important thing to keep in mind when considering what uh and I'm speculating, but what a Biden administration red line would look like, I just we just have to be crystal clear about it. Again, Ukraine is not a member of, of NATO. So 
I don't see a scenario where Biden or frankly any U.S. president would treat an invasion of, of Ukraine uh, as a cause for going to war with Russia. Uh, we sympathize with the Ukrainians. We should be helping the Ukrainians. There are a variety of ways we can support them, including with military aid, but they're not a treaty ally. And that's a very important distinction. I suspect that the international consequences of Putin going into Ukraine, particularly on a large scale, and I'm thinking of the possible Chinese reaction, it could, it, the emboldenment of, of China and the situation in, in uh, Strait of Formosa, um, but also the domestic reaction. I mean, Congress is, is unified more or less in support of Ukraine right now. I think it's very politically costly for Biden not to act. So in those circumstances, I think the threshold would be a, 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 a significant Russian military move into Ukraine. It certainly seems like for both international reasons and domestic political reasons, Biden would have to respond in strength to that kind of move. I think we saw a little window into his into his thinking on this when, um, in an unguarded moment in the press press conference last last week, uh, he alluded to a small scale incursion, and seemed to put that in a, a distinct category from a larger military operation. He has since stepped back from that. But but the but the bottom line is, if we have a shooting war in Ukraine, if the Russians come across the border, and the Ukrainians are at war with them. Based on what the administration has said, but also the political calculus, I think it has to act. And act in, in, in a fashion where there'd be a proxy war, where you have Ukrainians fighting Russians in Ukraine, either you know, in the east, perhaps even in the north, and the United States and NATO would not put troops into Ukraine, but they would be providing them material and support uh, and feed the Ukrainian side of the conflict, and essentially uh, it would be this proxy war. I mean, is that is that what you would expect would happen in a posture the Biden administration would take? And do you agree with it? As an expert and a former assistant secretary for this region in the Trump administration, would that be the approach you would recommend, given where we are today? Yeah, I, I would arm the Ukrainians. I mean, I think we're at a point where probably— the United States needs to be providing uh, both in quantity and quality um, uh, 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 much more serious capabilities to the Ukrainians. Um, obviously, there are technology transfer and other considerations that have to be kept in mind. But my thinking on this is, is, is formed in part by um, the fate of the Soviet empire and the czarist empire before it. it in both of those cases, um, the, uh, you, you had a Russian empire, basically, in both cases, different ideological hue, but a, a Russian empire succumbed in the wake of a military crisis on the border of uh, the empire that it couldn't handle. So you think of the Tsarist empire after the war with Japan, which was just disastrous for the Russians and really forced them to reconsider their strategic approach. I think of Afghanistan and the Reagan administration's conscious uh, decision to arm and abet the Mujahideen to bleed the Russians white in Afghanistan. Um, it, I think, is an Achilles heel of the Russian strategic position that they're this they have this vast geography that is studded around its borders with crises that can become an ulcer and, 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 and lead them to overextension. And ideally, it wouldn't require that kind of sacrifice and risk uh, 
to, to change the Russian outlook and uh, from a U.S. strategic perspective, but, but, it, but it very well may. So if the Russians are bent on strategic expansion to their West, um, look, I, I think it's in the, in the U.S. interest to have uh, Ukraine that is an independent state, obviously a democracy, but most importantly, an independent state that is capable and, and willing to resist for its own reasons of political independence and territorial sovereignty. Uh, so those who, who would counsel, for example, a kind of second Yalta or this idea that we would get at the table with the Russians and, and come, come to an understanding whereby they have his own and we have his own. The problem with that arrangement is that within a short period of time, the Russians would simply move the, the, the scrimmage line, if you will, the line of contact, a few degrees of latitude, sorry, of longitude uh, to their west. And we would be competing over Poland or Romania, both of which are yeah. NATO allies, which, by the way, would require even more U.S. military presence in Europe. So if I understand what you're saying, Wes, it, you know, we need to keep Ukraine the buffer. Because from a U.S. security standpoint, from a NATO standpoint, we don't want that buffer, the next line of, of, of contest between Russia and the West, NATO, the United States, to be NATO allies. Because then our treaty obligations really create some complications. Um, and as much as there's a, a formal treaty obligation, there also would be more opportunity to create crisis and division uh, within the alliance. So, you know, there are some real politics, some very kind of realist reasons to to keep the the debate and the challenge and the buffer within Ukraine rather than uh, negotiating over the Ukrainian's head and, and allowing uh, Ukraine just to go to the mm. Russian sphere of influence. Um, one more question, since you're a, a Russia watcher and have a deep understanding of... Russian politics, uh, the Kremlin, and what actually happens inside the world uh, in and around Vladimir Putin's Russia. There's some data out there which suggests that actually the Russian people, to the extent that matters in a country like Russia, don't want Putin after 2024. That is to say, when his term comes to an end, he's seeing numbers where now more Russians don't want Putin there than that than do want him there. How much of this is a concern for Vladimir Putin? How much does he need Ukraine to be a quote unquote, a win for him? So he can not just retain power because as an autocrat, he probably knows how to do that, but retain power in a fashion where he has more people than not behind him. That's an important question. Um, let me first uh, respond to, to a comment that you've made, uh, because I think it's, it's, it's enormously important to be clear on it. Uh, I think it is both true from a U.S. perspective, strategically and aspirationally. I, I think it's both true that we should want to see a thriving democratic Ukraine on the borders of Russia, not least because it's a, a counter model to a very corrupt, anti-democratic Putin regime. And which is part, part of the reason Putin doesn't want to succeed. But it is also true that for, for reasons of strategic interest, we don't want to see the Russian empire bigger. We don't want the Russian empire, which uh, uh, we don't want a re resurrection of the Russian empire under uh, new management. Um, 
the, the more territory population industry that uh, this hostile power has, the worse it is for U.S. interests, the more military attention we have to put in Europe at a moment when, uh, according to our Pentagon, the main strategic focus has to be China. So I just want to be clear. I think our interests are perfectly aligned in alignment with kind of higher principles of American statecraft. On the question of Putin and his motivations, uh, the calculus domestically, I would, I would put it this way. Putin appears to calculate that on the matter of Ukraine, he has the backing of a very su substantial uh, cross-section of the Russian public. Um, of course, Russia not being a democracy, we're, we're justifiably skeptical of public opinion polls that come out of Russia. So you have to take a lot of this with a grain of salt. But, but the reality from all the indicators that I can see is that uh, an aggressive line towards Ukraine is popular among the it's popular among the, the Russian political elite, certainly the so-called selectorate. But I think it's also generally popular with the Russian public. Now, there may be limits to that popularity when body bags start coming home. But historically, and in Russia's collective memory and culture and literature, Ukraine is is broadly seen as part of of Russia. So yeah, let me let me you know, interrupt you because just to back up that point, Wes, and it, and and you note that the popularity, in terms of a Russian stance, invasion of Ukraine, um, is something that we have evidence works for Vladimir Putin. But but of course, it always is a question of at what cost. Uh, if you I'm looking at a Radio for Europe Radio Liberty poll. Um, which, you know, they, based on personal interviews carried out with, you know, a statistically significant number of, of people in September of 2021, uh, and that was the numbers I was referring to before, that uh, Putin's popularity is, is, is lagging. But if you go back to 2014, uh, at the time of the annexation of Crimea, uh, it was knocking on 60%, and then the kind of months and a few years after, it was as high as 67%. So if you just had a cold political analysis and Putin was saying, hey, how do I make myself more popular? He probably is looking at to, you know, 2014 to 2017 and say, I need to kind of recreate those policies. There's something to it. I think there's something to that line of analysis. Um, that, you know, look, P Putin appears to see a, an aggressive line towards Ukraine as something that strengthens rather than weakens his regime. Um, there's broad-based kind of public support for it. Um, I mean, culturally and his historically, you know, Solzhenitsyn uh, or, and even Navalny would probably be unified in that aspect of um, the Putin agenda, if you will, of Ukraine being part of Russia. Um, I, I think the Putin also sees that many aspects of his regime's handling of economic and public health matters over the last couple of years have not been popular. So, you know, we've if you go back over the last two years, we've seen unprecedented protests on everything from handling of COVID to uh, the 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 fire that was in, that took place in this Russian mall, very tragic, where people died, and it sort of symbolized to everyday Russians how the state just basic rules and order don't work. We saw the protests over uh, raising uh, the pension age. So, from Putin's perspective. Uh, maybe add that to the list of earlier factors I mentioned that were international or U.S. administration or Germany. There, there are good domestic reasons for, for Putin to say, hey, now is uh, might not be a bad time 
to kind of double down on an aggressive approach. Let's uh, move the conversation to something we referenced before, which is NATO allies. And, and clearly an objective Vladimir Putin is to sow division within the alliance. You talk to any national security strategist and you think about how we deal with a China, we deal with a Russia or any problem, the comparative advantage for the United States of America are our alliances, our partners, formal treaty allies and partners and friends. You do a lot of thinking on this, a lot of writing on this, a lot of experience. You have a personal relationship with the Secretary General of NATO. You've worked, done projects on, on his behalf, on NATO's behalf, since you've left uh, the Trump administration. Take us through, Wes Mitchell, the NATO alliance as it stands right now, seen through the lens of Ukraine, uh, notably Germany and then France. Those seem to be the kind of what Don Rumsfeld will call old Europe players uh, who are really not aligned, at least in, you know, until recently, with where certainly Eastern Bloc NATO countries are or we think uh, even where the Biden administration would be. Uh, part of that is energy interests, at least as it relates to, to Germany. But there's other pieces here which perhaps uh, you can elaborate on and, and explain their mindset. And it probably uh, explains kind of how Vladimir Putin is seeking to exploit those differences. Well, I think from Ukraine's perspective, Roger, Europe right now in the kind of the high point of this crisis, it looks like kind of, kind of a, a mosaic of responses, some of which are helpful, some of which are not helpful, and, and some of which are downright dangerous or, or actively undermine Ukraine's position. Um, so to just give a couple of examples, building on what you've said, I mean, you've got at one end of the spectrum, the British, who are providing more in the way of defensive aid. They're, they're, going, they're going out on a limb more than anyone to make sure the Ukrainians have articles of war, have have the material to defend themselves. Um, I, I, I mean, it certainly looks like the British have sent. I don't know what the exact number is, but it, gosh, it's got to be a third or a half of the entire number of anti-tank missiles in the arsenal of the British Army, uh, and they're and they're training the Ukrainians. So it's very active, forward-leaning. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you mentioned Germany, very powerful, enormously wealthy country. The Germans. Uh, well, I mean, I, just putting it as diplomatically as possible, I think the Germans have taken an approach to the crisis that, from Ukraine's perspective, uh, is, in, is ambivalent at best, often seems to be publicly signaling to the Russians uh, that, that, that Germany that is okay with uh, Russia going into Ukraine and maybe even having a chunk of Ukraine. Um, I, I think... Uh, there are a lot of good good people in the German government who do understand what's at stake. But I think, by and large, the Schultz government uh, is doing a disservice to Ukraine and to Europe. I, I mean, not only by not providing the Ukrainians with lethal aid, but going out of their way to impede the efforts of other allies to provide military assistance to the Ukrainians. Uh, but uh, the, the, the final- Give an example. I'll what are you referring to in terms of the Schultz government German government interfering with NATO allies giving aid. Obviously, the United Kingdom has done that. They're flying it in, airlifting it in. What are you referring to? Well, you'll notice that the British, uh, from public reporting, the British appear to be careful to route their uh, air shipments of, of uh, 
in this case, anti-tank missiles around German airspace, which I think speaks for itself. Um, but, but more than that, I mean, it, it, it appears that the Germans are working within NATO and the EU to complicate uh, the efforts of certain other allies. Uh, Estonia is an example. I think there's a couple of others uh, to complicate their ability to re-export uh, fairly sophisticated weapons to the Ukrainians. Uh, that that goes hand in hand with a German stance on Nord Stream Two, which I think is uh, while while the Schultz government has said publicly all options are on the table, there's very little reason to believe that the that the Germans would actually revisit the prospects of completing the Nord Stream Two project if if Russia goes into Ukraine. In fact, you could go a step further and say to a lot of Germans. In the political class and in um, com big, big companies, commercial sectors. I mean, given the, ex the extent of German reliance on Russian gas, and given the fact that that without Nord Stream two, a very large amount of that gas comes to Europe and to Germany through overland transit through Ukraine, you could you could speculate that the Ukraine this this latest iteration of the crisis is likely to make the Germans more determined to build Nord Stream two. To avoid disruptions to their energy supply in the future, that could result from more crises like this. Just want to clarify what you've said there, Wes. It, it, given us the Germany mindset, we're at a moment where Russia is about to perhaps invade Ukraine. Germany is highly dependent on Russian gas, irrespective of Nord Stream Two, thirty percent at least, maybe more. To get that gas today, it goes to Ukraine, and Instead of Germany kind of stepping back and saying, you know what, being reliant on an autocrat like Vladimir Putin to keep our country you know, warm in the winter and have his energy needs through its gas, let's look elsewhere around the globe. The thinking of those in, in, in government in Germany and, and powerful business people is we need another route. We can't go through Ukraine, but we are not going to revisit dependence on Russian gas. Is, is that what you just said? Is that the German mindset as best you understand it? Yeah, that's 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 how I would describe it, and <clears throat> I, I think the key to grasp is that uh, from a Ukrainian perspective, that overland gas transit is a key component of deterring big Russian attacks. So Putin has less of an obvious rationale for for making a big military move in, into Ukraine that can be long and messy and disruptive, and if it's going to potentially impede his main gas transit. To Germany uh, and, and to Europe and to his, his main clients. When you think about how dependent the Russian economy and, and state revenues are on oil and gas, um, so from a from a German perspective, one takeaway could very well be: if these crises are going to be intensifying, we have even more reason to complete a direct route that lessens our our dependence on that overland transit. And and let me be clear that. From a German perspective, and I, and I think this needs to be said of, of all of our allies in Europe, and they've responded in different ways at different ends of the spectrum to the Ukraine crisis, they're responding to their uh, commercial and strategic incentives from the perspective of where they sit. So the Germans, of course, have a deep energy relationship with Russia. They've got an extensive commercial uh, relationship with the Russians. But, but, but I would add to that, most Germans do not perceive Russia to be a military threat to Germany. It's true of most Western Europeans, period. Most 
people in France or Belgium or the Netherlands, whatever they do or don't like about Putin as an autocrat or however much they may feel sympathy for Ukraine, most of them do not perceive Russia to be a direct military threat in the way, say, that Poland or Lithuania or Romania do. I think in Germany's case, there's one added factor, and it is Germany has, uh, I would say, more than any other large American ally in either Asia or Europe, really done well in the post-Cold War order. Um, th things have been good for Germany, and, and I, don't, I don't say that in a derogatory sense. I mean, these conditions of prolonged peace in which Germany could benefit from uh, the economic structure of the European Union, uh, tremendous exporting power, uh, but has smaller countries around it that it can use for labor uh, in conditions in, in which there's not an obvious military threat. And in any event, NATO is providing security. Uh, China is not a threat. Those are very, very favorable conditions from a German perspective. And I think the Germans want, I mean, in a way, I it, I think the Germans want those conditions to last as long as possible, which is understandable. But the American message to the Germans, and I think Ukraine is a wake-up call in this sense, the message from, the, from our side of the Germans has to continue to be, the world is changing whether you want it to or not. Uh, Russia today is not what Russia was in the 1990s. China today is not what China was in the 1990s. And America cannot bear the burden of deterring both of those very serious actors simultaneously, unless our allies, and especially our very wealthy allies, do more. I think over time that message will sink in, but unfortunately I think it may come at the cost of some pretty serious crises in which Germany underperforms as an ally. You just hit on uh, a point of view that really, for those listening and watching, kind of will make, take us back to the Trump presidency where allies need to bear the burden, particularly in Europe. Uh, you uh, recently, we published an essay you wrote with our Reagan Institute strategy group, where you outline how conservatives should approach alliances, and you call out Germany and others who really haven't kind of bore the burden that you're describing. It seems to me, based on your outline of, of Germany's approach to this Ukraine crisis, is they're not going to learn this lesson, right? The United States wants to, for all the reasons you've outlined, ideological, realpolitik, security, economic, wants to support Ukraine. But it seems like Germany would be fine with an outcome where Ukraine is a, a puppet of Moscow and, and it is no longer a democratic Ukraine because from an economic standpoint, in some ways, it would secure the gas that it needs economically. Um, Wes, with this objective of getting our allies to kind of to bear the burden, right, uh, which is what President Trump wants and what conservatives continue to want to see from NATO writ large, but Germany in particular, what do you need to see from Germany? What's the likelihood that will happen? You know, will this Ukraine crisis actually result in a ally that is bearing more of the burden or in fact, create more of a divergence between U.S. interests in Europe versus German interests in Europe? It's a hugely important question, Roger. And I think it's, it, it has become one of the most vexing questions or problems for American statecraft. 
And it is the question of how to retain allies, but also motivate them to do more. And we're coming out of a very long stretch of very easy living in the Western world. We haven't had these huge strategic risks, certainly not from threats from two directions. And so it's inevitable we have to ask our allies to do more. And I think we have to be clear about that because um, we, according to the Pentagon, we do not have the ability at present, and we're not planning or equipping to have the ability to, to fight uh, two land wars simultaneously in Asia and Europe in the way that we planned in the past. And so just starting with that, it, it's, it's a national security necessity to see allies do more. I, I, I think it's, um, we have to keep in mind the goal. The overarching goal is to retain and preserve our alliances, full stop. In competition with Russia and China, you said it best a minute ago, it, it, is, our, it is arguably our greatest competitive advantage. We have large numbers of wealthy, industrialized, mostly democratic states in our, in, in our side of the scales. And we need to preserve that also for technological reasons and economic reasons. We need the biggest base possible in, in international uh, politics, not least to compete with a, with a China that has a vast uh, internal market. But but I think that that question of how do you retain but motivate, it's clearly a balancing act. Um, I, I, I think you, you have to say, look, as the temperature increases in uh, world affairs and as, as competition intensifies with Russia and China, the message to allies has to be, you have to take strategic competition seriously. And in Germany's case, uh, I think these moments are arising and will continue to arise where these new realities are intruding in the landscape, in the reality that Germany would like to see continue. I am not in favor of using uh, economic, uh, I'm not, not, not in, in, in favor of using heavy economic pressure, tariffs, sanctions to modify allied behavior uh, in any but the most extreme circumstances. I think they tend to backfire. Uh, I think uh, we should exhaust every option at our disposal, persuasion, creativity in, in, in defense arrangements, in, in NATO. I can think of all kinds of things. But in some cases, it's unavoidable. Nord Stream 2 seems to me to be one of those cases where it's unavoidable. If we really want to stop this, this pipeline and the, the, the deeper the deepened dependency that it would bring for our largest ally in Europe on, on Russia, We've clearly exhausted other, other means, and it would be an example of where I think it, it's in the U.S. strategic interest, but also in Europe's interest, for us to use greater pressure uh, to, to create a chilling effect, get the Germans to, to rethink the, the project. It may have gone too far uh, to, to have that work, but I think it's an example of where the U.S. should be willing to-, to Fascinating. It, it's interesting, Wes Mitchell, that uh, here we are uh, coming to the- close of, of this discussion. And the first instance where you raised the subject of sanctions was not sanctions targeting Moscow and Vladimir Putin, which of course is part of uh, the, the suite of reactions and responses we're considering doing that is the U.S. as a result of uh, Putin's activities on the border of Ukraine, but actually you raised sanctions as it relates to our ally Germany and saying, hey, I heard you loud and clear. That's not something we want to do. We should avoid. But in this instance, as it relates to Nord Stream 2, and more broadly, German dependence on an autocrat like Putin, it is so, I forgot what the right word is here, 
uh, unhelpful is a, perhaps a, a diplomatic one, um, harmful uh, to the alliance that we may need to exercise that action. Fascinating. Um, and, and that's almost without knowing whether we have the intended effect. Before we close out, Wes, and go to our Reagan lightning round where we want to hear from you, uh, your favorite Reagan book, speech, quote, any or all, um, you've hit on it a couple of times, but we haven't dedicated uh, discussion to it, and that is China. Uh, you, of course, are uh, founder of the Marathon Initiative, which looks at great power competition. But I think generally would say, hey, China needs to be our first focus, given all the ways it's challenging our interests economically, politically, and, of course, from a security standpoint. Take a couple of minutes, Wes, and explain to us how our national security priority of, of dealing with China— needs to be considered as we deal with what we've been talking about for the past 40-plus minutes, Russia and Ukraine. And specifically, what I'd like you to address is an argument that would say, listen, Ukraine is not a NATO ally. Listen, Vladimir Putin is not invading the United States. We have a NATO. We have Germany and France and these strong economic military powers. Let them deal with this. Stop focusing on Europe. Take all of your time, attention, and energy and focus on China. You know, that type of formulation not only resides in, you know, circles on the Democratic side of the political spectrum, but of course in Republican circles too, perhaps not reflected in Congress, but certainly among strategists. Tell us how you come down on that argument, because let's be honest, diplomatic energy, political energy, you know, you can walk and chew gun at the same time, but it still means if you're focusing on Putin, it means you're not focusing on Xi. Uh, respond to all of that, Wes. Well, look, I think what you've articulated is probably the most serious strategic question that the United States has faced easily in a generation, possibly ever. Uh, and, I, and I mean the combination of a rising China that has a scale of economic and technological and military potential far greater than any of the rivals we face in the 20th century, and in its own right, as I think you've, you've, you've described very eloquently, is easily, uh, in its own right, the, the biggest challenge that we've ever faced. But that occurring at a moment when the, the vestigial rival from, from the Cold War, from the last big kind of moment of systemic rivalry, is still there, uh, has not exited the ranks of the, of the great powers, at least in, in military capabilities, uh, and probably has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So that um, uh, a scenario in which we saw major military crises at both ends of Eurasia simultaneously would strain every nerve and muscle on America's part. And I think uh, anyone who is serious about the future of U.S. national security, prosperity, has to really be honestly grappling with that, that problem and the dilemmas that come, come with it. I also think we have to acknowledge that there are not easy solutions to it. Um, from what I can see, uh, looking at American economic data, our, the size of our debt, um, the debate about military budgets, it's highly unlikely that we're just going to overawe both of those large land rivals and at the same time, deal with you know Iran and, and North Korea and other significant but smaller threats. 
Uh, so I, I don't think we can just say we're going to grow defense budgets until we can outproduce all of them. I don't, I don't think that that's a viable solution. I also don't think that we can just drive wedges between Russia and China. It's, it's, it's far from obvious to me that a wedge driving policy of the kind that tries to sow dissension between the two would, would, would work easily, not least because they themselves see the advantages of putting us on the horns of these dilemmas. I, I, I tend to say, look, our object has to be to avoid a two-front war if possible. And if that's not possible, to ensure that we have the broadest coalition possible to win it. Um, I think the goal in the Europe-Russia context, over time, we have to ensure that the circumstances there in our secondary theater permit the, the refocusing of a large amount of US military resources to the primary theater. That's the Department of Defense's plan. Um, it doesn't mean that we leave Europe militarily. Uh, to the contrary, I think both in nuclear terms and in, in, uh, in enablers, higher end capabilities, we continue to play a, a substantial role there. But I think first and foremost, it means something that we were talking about a minute ago, we need far more effective burden sharing by allies. Um, yeah, I think it's reasonable for us to expect wealthy European allies to feel the bulk of the conventional war fighting potential vis-a-vis -vis Russia. We can talk about how we get to that. Uh, you know, there's, I, I would favor, for example, uh, uh, a, a European level of ambition inside NATO that allows a pooling of European capabilities. But plank number one of the strategy in Europe has to be about burden sharing. And then I think the second piece has to be to the extent possible, we redirect Russia's expansionist energies away from uh, it, its preferred kind of westward range of expansion, U Ukraine, the Baltic states, that's, I don't think that's going to happen by offering the Russians a deal for the reasons I've articulated. I think the Russians would simply move the scrimmage line. It would probably require more U.S. military attention and focus, a, a, a deal that gives Russia uh, kind of tacitly a zone of influence. Uh, and so for those who say we, we have NATO and Poland, the Baltic states, we should, we should never have been there. My counter would be, we have what we have. And it is not cost-free for a power in America's circumstances to dismount from existing obligations in, in a way that suggests a permissible strategic landscape in, in Europe. I think that would fuel greater crises in Europe and require greater American military attention. So my, my preference would be to slam the door in Ukraine. I think you do that in Reagan-esque terms by arming the Ukrainians. You almost create such a red light in Ukraine that the, that the Russians conclude on the basis of their own interests. And it's just not worth the candle. It's too, yeah, too that's costly. A, I, I kind of think that, well, that's where I land. And I'm sympathetic to those who want to focus on prioritization and emphasis on China. Yet, in my mind, is to be successful in that endeavor, we need to win vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. In other words... Giving Vladimir Putin a win in Ukraine of the kind we've discussed for the past 50 minutes not only creates challenges for freedom, peace, stability in Europe, it ultimately weakens our position for a variety of reasons, some of which you've outlined, vis-a-vis -vis the China contest. And so we need to do well in Europe vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine if we care deeply about doing well in Asia 
uh, vis-a-vis China. Wes Mitchell, great conversation. Let's jump to our lightning round. Uh, been clear to our listeners and viewers that not only you're a former senior official with deep expertise in Europe, but you're also a historian. Uh, people can go to Amazon and see your latest works on the Habsburgs and European uh, uh, kind of security and diplomacy in the 19th century. Um, but for now, give us your expertise of the 1980s. Give us your favorite Reagan book, speech, quote, all three, or we'll take whatever you have. Well, thank you for those kind words, Roger. It means a lot coming from you. Um, Look, Reagan had a tremendous impact on my life growing up in rural Texas in the 1980s. Um, A lot of fond memories of watching him on TV between episodes of Airwolf and and V. (laughs) And uh, actually, uh, just a quick anecdote before I answer your question. I remember as a kid, you know, I, I grew up in a fairly religious household and uh, very, very strong Reagan supporters. And I remember one night at dinner, uh, my dad asked me to, to, to say the prayer before the meal. And so I'm, you know, here's this kid, you know, I, we ha- we're in the middle of an election. Uh, I think uh, Reagan at that was running against Walter Mondale, if I, if I remember correctly. And in my prayer, I said, Lord, please help Mondale and before I could say another word, my father interrupted me and said, no. And I said, <laughs> Dad, you got to let me finish. I was going to say, Lord, please help Mondale to lose. So Reagan is, is firmly ensconced in Mitchell family lore. Um, look, I, you know, he's Reagan, my, my favorite Reagan speech. There's a lot of obvious picks for a foreign policy aficionado, but I would have to go with uh, his speech to the German Bundestag in 1982. Uh, for a Germanophile, and for a lot of reasons we were just discussing the focus on Germany, very meaningful speech. He, um, he, he gave that speech at a time when he was hugely unpopular in Germany, when the pacifist movement was in full swing, they were burning him in eff- effigy in, in German protests over deployments of Pershing missiles. But I like that speech because it says so much about Reagan's style and his oratory to statecraft. He spoke to the Germans in a very moving way about their place in the West. Uh, he, he appealed to their sense of responsibility. He quoted, he quoted Schiller. There were hecklers in the crowd. And of course, being Reagan, he used humor to disarm the hecklers and, and kind of get the crowd with him. So that's probably my favorite. It's a lesser known speech, but it really speaks to me as somebody who, who, who uh, knows that we've been at it for a long time, working with the Germans to, to, to get them where they need to be on defense spending. And, and, and Reagan took that on you know, by the horns in that speech. Just a very uh, moving uh, speech, and, it's, and, it, and he combined kind of an effectiveness and persuasion with humor. You know, his favorite uh, book, um, a lot of good biographies have been written of Reagan. Um, my favorite book about about Reagan or that deals with Reagan, though, is probably Peter Schweitzer's book, Victory. Mm. And it's an important book because it shows very clearly that Reagan was a serious strategic thinker who participated actively in the construction of the strategy that won the Cold War. And it should be obvious, but you got to remember Reagan's critics like to describe him then and now as a lightweight. I mean, you know, Arthur Schlesinger and Ken Galbraith and some of these, the Brahmins of the American uh, intellectual left, you know, really were just horrified, just thought of him as a cowboy. And I mean, even on the eve of the end of the Cold War, we're predicting like a new era of rebirth and economic life for the Soviet Union. And they were just gobsmacked 
in the Soviet <laughs> Union. And even today, left-wing academics like to claim that it wasn't Reagan's policies that brought about the Soviet collapse. Schweitzer's book is a really smart anecdote to that way of thinking. And then finally, you asked about my favorite quote, um, which is really tough. But you know, I it led me to look back at some of the things he had said. And so I, let, let me give you a quote from his, his uh, speech to the German Bundestag that I just yeah. mentioned. And remember, he was talking to a very skeptical German audience that did not want to increase defense spending. He said, reasonable strength is honorable when used to maintain peace or, or defend deeply held beliefs. And clearly the Germans needed to hear that. I think they need to hear it now. But, it, but I have to close with this. It's, it's Reagan's funny side that has always appealed most to me. Right. Um, I, I love his line. He said, I think it was in the Rose Garden, as long as there are final exams, there will be prayer in school. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but this is the best. He, uh, to me, I liked it when he said, I have left orders to be awakened at any time in case of national emergency, even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. <laughs> so, it's his humor. And I, I close with that because his humor... It disarmed enemies, but it also softened them. It showed his humanity and his civility, and I think we need a lot more of all of that right now. Wes Mitchell, thank you so much for being on the show. Great lightning round, great discussion. We'll have you back again. Thanks for having me, Roger. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. 